and seeing where you are with it this, by this evening. It's been a little over 24 hours. And I wanted to speak a little bit tonight about the five hindrances. So you might have noticed out on, in the foyer there's a poster that we brought with the images of the five hindrances of the mind and the clear mind. There's another image here of the clear mind, the, uh, the clear water. And you know, the Buddha approached our, our kind of affliction, you could say, from many different angles. So he understood the true nature of mind. He dwelt in the fully awake, open, bright, clear, knowing awareness. And he saw how we you know, get caught and, and get lost through, through many, many different uh, uh, misunderstandings or misidentifications. So one of, the, one of the ways that he pointed to our um, cause of, of suffering is through the five hindrances to enlightenment, or to be more accurate to identifying with the five hindrances to enlightenment. And uh, you know, we'll be familiar with all of them they all pass through our minds, you know. In a day, I'm sure a whole, uh, many of many, each of them, numerous times will have will have been playing out. So they're uh, they're very familiar. So I always find this a very compassionate approach of the Buddha. That he didn't he didn't uh, point to something really hard to understand or hard to grasp, but he pointed to what is right here, really obvious that we we find ourselves in again and again. But uh, rather than saying, you know, this is bad and you shouldn't, you shouldn't have these mind states, he points to them, you know, these, are, these mind states arise and they hinder us from being fully awake if we're not paying proper attention. So uh, I'll just list them. That's one of the lists. So the, the five hindrances, the hindrance of sensual desire. So sensual desire can come in in many ways or can have many objects. So it can be, have sensual desire, could be sexual desire or it could be sensual desire for a, a nice car or for the latest technology or for delicious food or a nice outfit or a holiday, a vacation somewhere. Or it could even just be like wanting a nice feeling in the body. So, uh, so the, the, the sensual desire itself, it, it kind of has, has the same energy and then it looks for these different objects. It attaches to these different objects. And we, we get caught and we think, oh, if only I had that whatever it is, I would be fulfilled, I would be happy, I'd be at ease. And it's kind of, you know, stating the obvious, and it's something I'm sure you've, you've watched happen many times, but it happens again and again. 
and we fall for it again and again, amazingly, through our lives. And you know, one of the reasons we fall for it is because it's it has a a, a temporary gratification. There is gratification when we follow sensual desire for a little while, and then it passes, and then we find that that desire hasn't been really fulfilled. It can't be, it can't be really fulfilled. So sensual desire is uh, one of the hindrances to enlightenment. Ill will is also a hindrance to enlightenment. And just noticing when ill will arises in the mind. So we might find ourselves noticing, you know, if we have an aversive tendency of mind, we might come into the room and notice what's wrong. The lights aren't right, the, the, the nuns aren't sitting <laughs> upright enough. They, uh, you know, it's too warm, it's too cold, and we notice all of these things. And then our mind locks onto that, and then it just sees what's wrong. And it misses all of the, you know, amazing goodness that is here, the, you know, the, this beautiful shelter that we're meditating within and the, the beautiful environment and the, the good intention of everybody who's come here and the fact that everybody's keeping the eight precepts. It's an incredibly high level of sila. We miss all of that and we just notice the thing that's wrong. And then there's a certain kind of, it, there's a sort of an agitation to it, but it's like an agitation that becomes almost addictive. We want to, we want to go there again and, and again to what's wrong and point out that it's wrong and it shouldn't be like that. We might be doing that with a person. We might have picked out one person in this room <laughs> and we notice something that they're doing wrong or something that we don't like about what they're wearing or that they, you know, they have a particular habit that we don't like. And, and then we just keep seeing that again and again, and our mind just keeps picking on that again and again. So, uh, you know, maybe that the mind is doing that. This is the hindrance of ill will. And then there's the hindrance of sloth and torpor, or sleepiness and dullness. And I think on the, f- the first day of a retreat, you know, often we are sleepy, and I've found myself feeling quite sleepy today. Um, you know, we're changing pace quite, quite drastically. So uh, there can be just genuine exhaustion, and there can be the sleepiness of, of having to change gear so quickly. Or there can just be a, a not paying proper attention to what's going on, and so the mind just gets dull and loses interest and starts to droop. So uh, sloth and torpor is a hindrance to enlightenment. And restlessness and worry is the, is the fourth hindrance. Um, sort of doesn't really need an explanation, does it? Restlessness and worry. <laughs> we all know what it feels like. Can't sit still waiting for the bell, 
waiting for the next thing, and then maybe worrying about what's, you know, how am I going to manage, is it going to be alright, what about the future? So uh, yeah, I'm sure everybody is familiar with these qualities. And just knowing this is again a hindrance to enlightenment. And then doubt. So it could be a massive existential doubt. Or it could be just doubt about whether I'm practicing in the right way, whether I'm using the right technique, whether I really understand what the teachers are saying, whether I should... It can be even very silly things, you know. Should I take this something from this dish or that dish? You know, should I have grains for breakfast or fruit, you know? And then we can't make a decision, so then get, go round and round in doubt. So these are the, the five hindrances to enlightenment. And, you know, on they go. They play themselves out again and again in our minds. And most of the time, you know, when we, unless we play proper attention, most of the time we become those. We miss the fact that they are just a mind state, a thought arising in the mind. They're just a, a state of mind that is arising for a while. And it's there for a while. It has a certain... Uh, it, it kind of grabs our attention. So that's all it is, really. <laughs> and what, we, what happens is we, you know, that often we, we're not at all aware. So if we don't have any awareness at all, then we're... We're just immediately, you know, ill will arises and we're immediately onto somebody, onto, the, you know, picking at something and complaining about something. And we've missed completely the, the fact that this is a, a mind state that arises, that we have a choice in how we relate to it. And that it might not be as much that external cause as, as the internal experience of ill will that has been maybe neglected or, or allowed to develop in our own minds. So, uh, you know, we identify quickly like that. We immediately start to identify with these mind states. We become them. And either this ill will is turned towards ourselves or it's turned towards something external. And we believe it. We believe it and become it. So, uh, you know, when, when this happens, uh, it is inevitably suffering. It's dukkha. It's unpleasant. And it's not that we can just decide, okay, you know, now I know about the five hindrances. I read the, the, read the you know, nice little poster on the wall and, and I can just uh, not do that now. It doesn't, it's not quite as easy as that. But we can know what's going on. So we bring sati, we bring mindfulness, awareness to what is going on in the mind. And it's very important to know the difference between the mind state and this sense of identification. Because as long as we're identified, it's kind of, we can't really look in an objective way, we can't really see clearly. So the identification it kind of comes in two ways. It can be... Uh, It can be 
ähm, just really not noticing that that's present and, and acting from it, or it can be noticing that it's present and judging that it's present. They're both ways of identif- identifying. So, you know, it's, it's kind of ironic. You know, we, we notice that ill will has arisen. We're, we're feeling ill will. We're feeling aversive, irritated. And then we notice, oh, I'm feeling averse and irritated. Oh, no, I'm doing that again. I'm just, I'm always going, I'm always doing that. I'm just doing that again. I'm, I'm just hopeless. I'm never going to get anywhere in my practice. So we, we have ill will and then we add ill will on top of it. You know, so this is how we get more and more entrenched. And this is, the, this is what happens when we identify, when we attach to these mind states. So, so what the Buddha is pointing to is to, is to turn and take an interest to, to bring clear awareness to what is going on and be interested, curious in what we find here. And really I want to emphasize that if we, if we have an ideal of how we should be and if we you know, believe in the, our conditioning of how we should be, we're going to be stuck there. So this is, this is approaching it from a different perspective. You know, when we practice the Dharma, it is quite a radical <laughs> practice because we're not, we're not following the ways of our culture. We're not following, most likely, for most of us, the ways that our family thought or trained us. And we're not following the way our culture is encouraging us to be. And uh, it's, it's coming from a completely different perspective. So... So instead of uh, having this sense of like how I should be or how others should be, we're taking an interest. It's, it's, it's a completely different approach. So we notice ill will has arisen. I'm annoyed, irritated. And what's the cause? It's, it's that person out there who's doing that again. And then we see like, well, is it actually? Is that, is that true? Are we sure? Am I sure that that's really the cause? And I can feel it in my heart. I can feel the agitation, the irritation in my heart. And as long as I'm blaming it on somebody out there, I'm not going to learn anything. I won't, I won't find any peace here in my own heart because I'm, I'm empowering somebody else to be in control of my peace of mind. And I'm, and I'm saying because they're doing those things, I'm not experiencing any peace of mind. So that's kind of fruitless. So we need to turn back and look at well, what's going on here. What is the feeling in the, in the heart, in the mind? It's, it's agitated, it's painful, it's pinched. It's maybe a little bit mean. And, you know, what it, is that a wholesome state or an unwholesome state? It's unwholesome. Is that going to lead to my welfare? It doesn't look like it. Is it going to lead to the welfare of that other person? Certainly not. Is it going to lead to both of our welfare? No, it doesn't look like it. So do I want to cultivate this or not? <laughs> so if the answer is not, then, then we have to, to, to look at how do we want to meet this that has arisen in, in the heart and mind. 
So uh, the first thing really is to bring awareness, simply bring awareness with all five hindrances. The first thing to do is to just bring sati, bring awareness to what is going on. And it can be that that is enough. Just holding what has arisen in awareness can be just enough. You don't need to do anything else. So in, in doing that, you know, there's a knowing that this is not who and what I am. This is not ultimately true. The sati, the mindfulness, is that's not who and what we are either, but it, it's, it's the truth, it's the awakenness, it's the knowing. And so it can be just that, that that's just enough, just to have the, the mindfulness, the awareness with the, the hindrance that has arisen. And then it's just, you can just hold it there in awareness and not feed it, not adding to it and not judging it, not pushing it away. This is the, the middle way. This is the, the path between the two extremes. And so you hold it there. You let it be there in awareness. And if you don't feed it and you don't uh, try and squash it, then it will pass on its own. And you can take an interest in if, what does it feel like? What are the qualities? Just so, it's, so it becomes a, 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 a source of investigation, of mindfulness and investigation, instead of uh, who and what we are. So that might be enough, just, just paying attention in that way it can just then pass on its own. Or it might be that it reveals something. It might be that it's arisen because there's something that needs to be seen and understood. You know, there may be a, um, even a very old memory or, or something that, uh, that has happened that, that feels wrong and you feel like, no, that needs to be acknowledged. It needs to be acknowledged and seen and felt and then it can be let go of. So we don't want to cut corners. It's a process of paying attention, being mindful and aware and investigating, being open to learn from what's going on in our experience. So, uh, you know, that might be, we can use those means to meet any of those five hindrances. And it might be that that's not enough and that, that, it's, that the hindrance is very strong. So we, we uh, you find that certain parts of the Buddha's teaching talks about the, these different types, you know, the greed type, the aversive type, the delusional type, and then the faith type, the uh, the wisdom type, and the I'm not sure what the sixth one is actually, another type. <laughs> Can't remember that one. And. Uh, and then we start to, so you can see that the mind, our character might lean in one way or another. You know, we might have a, have a sort of propensity for greed. And then we're working on it, and it's maybe better than it was, but, you know, we're not so wild as we used to be, but it still comes out in different places. Or it might be a, a propensity for ill will, and you know, always seeing what's wrong. And, and then maybe we, we channel, channel that in the right direction. So we use it for discernment rather than for criticism. So it's not, uh, it's not necessarily in itself unwholesome if we, if we channel it in the right way. And uh, delusion, you know, we need, to, we need to investigate and study and uh, 
take interest, to kind of open the mind out of those delusionary states. So, uh, you know, it might be that we need to actively apply uh, an antidote to what is arising. So, you know, if, if just bringing mindfulness isn't enough, if uh, holding it in awareness isn't enough, uh, giving it some time, then we need to start actively counterbalancing the those um, more unwholesome tendencies of mind. And there's a lot of uh, investigation these days around um, neuroscience and uh, neural pathways and there's this kind of you know, wonderful discoveries that our, our brains are, are much more malleable than we thought, much more changeable than we thought, even just a few years ago. So it's not that you know, we've had this conditioning and, and we're stuck with this particular kind of character or way of being, but you know, through the practice, through, through awareness and through mindfulness and through cultivating what is wholesome, and not feeding what is unwholesome. We can transform our minds. And we begin by knowing what is here, what is present. And you know, also, before I go on to the, the antidotes, also I also want to say that I think particularly in Western culture, I'm not sure if it is just Western culture actually, but we, we're very conditioned to, to notice what's missing or what's wrong. You know, we grow up in a culture that's like critical thinking is, is really highly praised. So we, we, what we tend to do is that happens, we do that to ourselves too. You know, we notice all the bits that are wrong, the bits that are missing, the bits we need to cultivate, we need to do better. And that can be very good because then we know what we need to work on. But it can be there also that we just completely miss the good that is inherently present. So when investigating the hindrances, we don't just look, you know, is there ill will? Is there sense of desire? Is there sleepiness and dullness? Is there worry? Is there doubt? But we look, is sense of desire present in my mind right now? And maybe it isn't. And then we notice, oh, there's no sense of desire present in the right mind right now. This is a wholesome state. This is to be rejoiced in. This is wonderful. There is freedom of sense of desire right now. And we don't say, oh, well, that doesn't count because I'm feeling annoyed. No. We're just looking at sense of desire at that moment and, and it's absent. And that's wonderful. So really taking that to heart and rejoicing in, in that absence of sense or desire in the times when it is absent, which are many. And is ill will present in me right now? Maybe like, yes, you know, feeling a bit annoyed, a bit irritated. And then we can, you know, bring mindfulness to that, work with that, and then stay with it to the point where we see it change. So whether that's just just through bringing mindfulness or whether it's through bringing an antidote, we stay with that until it changes and then we notice it's, it's past. There is no ill will present in the mind right now. This is to be rejoiced in. 
So we can enjoy the absence of ill will. We can really, I mean, and I mean really take delight in the absence of ill will. And it's something you're going to have to really work on because it's not the way we're conditioned. And also then we notice that it's, it's impermanent. You know, it changes. It's not, we don't have to buy into it. It's, it's going to change on its own. And we can do that with each of the hindrances. Just it's something I, I use as a practice now in meditation, just going through, it's like a little check-in, you know. What is present, what is not present. And not to, you know, when ill will is present, to, to then add to it by being critical, but to know it. And when it's not present, to rejoice in that absence of ill will. I think if you, re- if you use this practice, you'll find there's lots of opportunities for rejoicing in the wholesome qualities of mind that we miss because we're, only, we're either kind of you know, slurred into kind of believing that it's me, who and what I am or, or not really noticing or only noticing the bits that we consider to be wrong. But I think if you really pay attention, you'll find that there's, there, are, there are many, many opportunities to rejoice in the absence of any one of those hindrances. And as you put that energy into appreciating the absence, it's like you're reprogramming your whole system. You're, uh, you're appreciating the, the wholesome, the, the naturally wholesome. You know, the absence of something unwholesome is naturally wholesome. That the true nature of mind is wholesome, beautiful, awake, bright. That's that's how it is when we're not lost in all of these uh, temporary obscurations. So behind any 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 negative mind state or any harmful mind state is. The, the bright, awake, wholesome, clear mind. It's always here actually, but we miss it because we're, we're looking in the wrong place. So the antidotes to the hindrances the, the hindrance of sensual desire. And sensual desire is when we, it's like a, in, in these these images on the poster, sensual desire is like a dye in the water. So we have this image of a bowl of water. And in the, the Buddha's time, there weren't mirrors. Now everywhere you go, you see a mirror, you get to see how you look. And uh, in back in those days, there weren't mirrors. And people would look in maybe polished metal or in a, in a bowl of water and, so that would be your, your image of, of reality, of, of who you are. That's how you'd see yourself. And so he uses this image of a bowl of water and looking into that bowl of water and the, the water that is, or the, and it's an image of the mind. So that bowl of water is also like an image of the mind. So the mind that is filled with sensual desire is coloured with a dye, a red dye, yellow dye, blue dye. So when you're looking into water that is dyed, you're not seeing the the natural state. You're not seeing clearly. You're seeing it's coloured, it's influenced, and that's how it is with sensual desire. Now we see something, and 
it's just the most important thing in the world and we've just got to have it. And we can't see clearly. Like It's like this, the mind is flooded, is coloured and flooded with this desire. And so then we, you know, we, we believe that if only we have that, then everything will be okay and we've got to have it. Or maybe we know we mustn't, we mustn't go for that and yet it's just pulling and pulling. And, but it is just like a colouring. It is like that. I was, uh, I was once uh, had the very good fortune to be in the presence of a, a great monk, um, Venerable Mahagosananda, and uh, he's died now. He lived on the east coast. He lived in on the east coast of America. He was a Cambodian monk, and uh, one of the three times I met him, um, I was. Uh, because of certain circumstances, I've been working very hard. I was very, on that day, I've been doing a lot of hard physical work. I was very tired. I hadn't had a drink all afternoon. I'd been working outside. And then the message came, oh, Venerable Mahagosananda's here, and he's going to give a talk at 5 o'clock. And this was about 20 to 5 or something. And we can, we're all invited to go and, and sit and listen to him give a talk. And so... Uh, by the time I got to the room, this is in, in Chittas Monastery, the monks and nuns, and he was he was a bit of a walk, quite a, sort of maybe 20 minutes walk away from where I was. And uh, by the time I got there, I was really tired and uh, thirsty, and I just wanted a, a I remember really clearly, I wanted a red drink, I wanted a red berry drink with lots of sugar, because I was kind of been working really hard, and I thought, oh, just, just need a good drink, and then I'd be all right. And so it was tea, and everybody was sitting uh, in this room, and he was sitting on a raised seat, and I, I was sitting right opposite him. And, and uh, finally, I got my tea. So somebody would be pouring the different teas. I got my tea, and there it was. It was red. It had sugar in. It was everything I wanted. And then he started to talk. And the tradition is that you don't drink while somebody's giving a dhamma talk. So it's like, <laughs> and um, so I was just sitting there like, oh, I just really want that drink. And he was he was sitting in front of me, and he. He was kind of smiling and he was giving this talk. And as he was looking at me and, and speaking, it was like my mind just cooled. It's cooled. And this, the, the redness and the sweetness of this drink was, became just completely irrelevant. It was like it meant nothing. And there was just water element. There was nothing else. And the desire calmed down. And there was just this cup of water element. That was all it was. And uh, it was just so beautiful to see, you know, how the, the mind was so... It was a very harmless sensual desire, very harmless and very understandable. But it still was. It was sensual desire. The mind was flooded with this perception that if I just get this red sweet drink, everything will be all right. And, and then it was just like the mind cooled. And that carried on for about, a, you know, maybe a day and a half or something. The mind was just in that cool state through being in the presence of this great being. And then, of course, then it came back again, you know. <laughs> then the, the, the flooded, the mind flooded again with the, with the colours of sense of desire. But just to see that, uh, to see so clearly the illusion of sense of desire, even though we get caught again and again, and it really is like that it's colours our experience. So to, to investigate that, you know, when, when sense of desire arises really strongly, just sort of, explore it a bit 
see 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 what it's uh, what it's doing know the pull of it and uh, one way to to cool sensual desire is to reflect on the the unattractive aspect so if you have very strong desire sexual desire is is reflecting on just the the actual kind of reality of the body the physical body so if we don't bathe for a week it's not very attractive smells bad breath smells bad body smells bad you know so that's just what the body's like it just does that there's nothing wrong with it but we don't tend to give it enough time to find out we could quick wash it oh, smell better oh, do something put some deodorant on and make it look nice and so it's just like an investigation of, of how the body is. And it's not meant to bring aversion, that's not the purpose, but to bring a cooling, a balancing. So if there's very strong desire, then you balance it with just recognizing the, the true nature of the body. What, what, is, what is it made of? The f- skin, flesh, bones. You know, it goes back to nature when it dies. So just to, in, in, for a cooling effect, not for, no, not for bringing aversion. And with food, you can also reflect on, you know, the, the excitement around food and then what happens to it, you know, put it in the mouth, chew it up, it's mixed up with saliva, swallow it, bile, acids, you know, all of that stuff churning, on it goes, comes out, we'll quickly flush it away. So just to reflect on, you know, when there's a lot of desire for food, just, just let the mind go through that process. It gradually starts to balance things out. And uh, with ill will, and also to, to notice the impermanence of, of, that, of, the, of the sensual desire, the, the change, of the, the, that feeling, that pulling and craving changes. And with ill will... Uh, to practice loving kindness, practice metta, loving friendliness. So, uh, well, there's two things. One, that if, if you can't go straight to that, then just to notice. Say, for example, if your if your kind of mind is picking on someone, something that's wrong, or in something, and it just keeps on picking away at those things that are wrong. Notice that and reflect on this is a hindrance. It's not going to lead to anything wholesome. And to see, not, not in a foolish way, but in a, in a discerning way, to see, well, what is wholesome about that same person or about that same situation? And just to sort of put energy into seeing what is good. So this isn't, this isn't to say that we, uh, you know, we ignore all of the negative things and just look at positive things and, and be, be kind of foolish. That's not the point. But it's about balancing and retraining our mind from, from honing in on what's wrong to seeing what's wrong and what's right. Seeing what should be better and what is already perfect. So it's balancing. And uh, with sleepiness, uh, well, there's different things. It can, it can open your eyes and let, you know, let the mind, let your eyes... Um, experience the light of, of a candle or a light, light on the wall or daylight when the, de- when the sun's shining. And there's also the contemplation of death. 
which I found to be very, very effective. So I'm a sleepy type. I easily go into sleepiness. And I found the contemplation of death is, is very, very helpful. So I used to say one of the ways to work with sleepiness is to sit on the edge of a cliff <laughs> and then immediately you're going to wake up. And people sort of criticised me for that and said, I shouldn't really say that. And um, I, quite, I was quite delighted recently to be on retreat with a monk who said one of the things that he did was to sit on the edge of a cliff <laughs> and that he found that it worked really well but he didn't recommend it as a, as a practice for everybody but to, you don't need to do that we don't need to actually put our life in danger but to, to just with the in breath bring to mind this could be my last breath because the truth is it could be we never know when our last breath will be so with each in-breath, if we're sleepy and dull, just with each in-breath, just bring to mind the thought, this could be my last breath. So when I do that, I find my mind immediately brightens and I'm interested. Okay, if this is my last breath, I want to be here. I want to know what's going on. I want it to be wholesome. I want the mind to be in a, in a good state. I don't want to be half asleep, confused and, you know... So just to experiment with that if, you f- if you're finding there's dullness. Because dullness comes from a sense of like, oh yeah, you know, been there, done that, know what's going to come next. And, and then we're not really paying attention. One breath is just the same as another. I've watched a billion of them already. Oh God, you know. That's not really being mindful. So just to, ma- just to bring to mind the possibility that this could be our last breath. That's also very good training for when that last breath comes, whenever it will be. Because none of us know. So if we, if we you know, bring mindfulness to the possibility of this being our last breath, when we come to that stage, you know, there can be an interest, an openness, a curiosity, an awakenness with our real last breath. And that can only be good. And uh, restlessness and worry. So I think this is uh, anxiety is a very common uh, ailment of our time. And it's very connected with thinking. So we're very much trained to be in the thinking mind. And anxiety is, is, is very much connected with being in thought, thinking about the future, worrying about the future, trying to work things out. And, and it's, it's kind of moving away from the, the physical body, even though we can feel anxiety in our body. You know, it is, the body also tenses up. So one of the antidotes to anxiety is to breathe out, to relax with the out-breath. So to not pay so much attention to the in-breath, but to relax with the out-breath, with each out-breath. So, so let it release energy. So this is a skillful means in meditation. If we're kind of more engaged in daily life, one also skillful means can be to, to do something good. You know, if we're worried about something, step, you know, do something that might... Uh, I don't mean like restless, anxious, doing things, but you know, do something that might help the situation, can help to alleviate anxiety. But uh, here in this retreat situation, just experiment with the out-breath and, and moving away from the thoughts, 
The thoughts aren't going to help. They're just going to make it more and more. Come down into the body and breathe out. Maybe come down into the belly. Let your belly relax, open, soften, and breathe out. And just be with the out-breath. So if you're sleepy, don't be with the out-breath, you'll fall asleep. But if you're restless, just let the out-breath soothe you. Just so you can let go. And also when you go out and do walking meditation, you can, you can offer some of that energy back to the earth. The earth can take it. It likes to receive that energy. So you can just, just offer, it, offer it back. It's like when we've held on to too much. Doesn't really all that energy doesn't belong to us anymore. We have to let it go, let it go back to the elements. And if we're suffering from doubt, then one of the problems with doubt is that we're always sure that there's a right answer that somebody else knows. Usually we think somebody else knows. Or if only I think about it long enough then I'll then I'll understand what to do. But doubt just goes round and round in circles. So the image of doubt in the, with the bowls of water, sorry, I haven't followed through with that, those images, but the image of doubt with that bowl of water is, uh, is like a turbid, muddy water that is in a dark place. So it's kind of impossible to see clearly. Cannot see clearly. And what we tend to think is if we just keep stirring it, if we just keep going round and round, round and round again more and more, then we'll get clear. But the more we stir it, the more muddy it is the less we can see clearly. So what we need to do is to just pick up, pick something up and and try it. So should I be doing this or should I be doing that? Okay, let's just try this for a while and see what happens. And then we just see, is, is this leading to good results? Is it working for me? And if it isn't, then pick up something else and try that. But try it for long enough that you can see the results. Don't just, you know, wander from one thing to another restlessly. And then it, when you find something that's working, then stay with that. Take it deeper. You know, there is no prescribed right answer. And even with all of the many techniques that are taught, you know, some people are very confident in, in teaching, you know, this is the way. You should watch the breath at the tip of the nostrils. This is the way. And then someone else says, you should watch the breath at the belly. This is the way. And then you think, oh... And they're both equally confident and, and sure. And then someone else says, no, you should just keep doing body sweeping. And then someone else says, listen to the sound of silence. And then you think, oh gosh, what am I supposed to do? You know. So each one of those is confident because that particular technique has worked for them. So you have to find what works for you. It might be something completely different. So to, to find out, you have to investigate and apply different methods. So uh, I did miss those uh, analogies, so I'll just go through those. Uh, so the, the mind of sensual desire is like a bowl of water filled with dye. The mind of ill will is like a bowl of water on a fire. It's boiling away. It's hot. So if you look into that bowl of water, you're not going to see your face very clearly. In fact, you'll probably get hot water spitting at you. So that's the, the uh, analogy for ill will. And the bowl of water 
that is uh, sleepiness and dullness is like stagnant water that's, that algae has grown over. It's really like that, isn't it? And so you look in and you can't see anything. You just see this kind of green, pondy, kind of smelly water. And uh, the restless and worried mind is like water, a bowl of water that is in a windy place and the wind is, is whipping up waves. So again, you look in and you can't see clearly. You just see kind of it's all rippling and agitated and you kind of maybe see little glimpses but it never stays still long enough. And then the the water that symbolizes doubt, as I just said, is, is muddy, turbid, in a, in a dark place. And then the, the bowl of water that symbolizes the mind that is free of the hindrances is just like this bowl of water here behind me. It is clear, still, bright, fresh, beautiful. So, you know, as you, if you think about it, un, you know, the, the, the nat, the, um, if you let the, the muddy turb, uh, water settle, then it'll be clear. If you bring it out into the light, you'll be able to see it clearly. If you shelter the restless, the windy, the bowl in the wind from, from those winds, it'll, it'll settle. You know, even a dye will eventually settle. And then you'll see the clear water. So the clear water is the natural state. And all the other stuff is, is extra. So I'd like to encourage you over this time to you know, pay attention, like get to know, have a look and get to know, well, what's present now? Is, wh- which hindrance is present and which is not present? And please don't forget to notice the parts that are not you know, the, the, un, the, the hindrances that are not present. Don't skip that bit because you'll find that's a, a large part of the picture. And as you pay attention to that, more and more joy arises. And we'll speak a bit later about the, the way paying attention in this way leads naturally to wholesome and uh, awakened states. So I'd like to offer that for this evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.